Well, good morning all. Please do turn back with me to John's Gospel. And we've come this morning to chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, page 887 in the Church Bibles. John chapter 2 from verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, oh, how we need to feel your presence with us through your son Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We need to know this morning that God has spoken and that it is the moment our week revolves around. And so we pray by your Spirit's power, would you fill this room and every heart, not with frail human words, but with the voice of your Son, And as we put ourselves under all that he says, would we consciously be sitting at the feet of the one with all authority of heaven? And in submitting to him, would we find all grace and all the joy we need? For we ask it in Jesus as your hungry children. Amen. I thought I knew him. I really did. How often have you found yourself saying something to that effect? You thought you knew someone until he reacted in a way you would never have believed. Perhaps you can think of a relationship that changed forever in an instant. You were with someone you'd known for years as they went through something that tore into their soul. And in that moment, you saw them in a way you'd never seen them before. Well, last time in John's gospel, we met Jesus Christ, the bridegroom and the bringer of joy, the Jesus we love, the one we've delighted to give our lives to. But how well do we know him? This week, we meet Jesus Christ, religious extremist. 
A Jesus who makes a whip out of cords and literally lashes out at man and beast over what, until I guess the last few years at least, we'd started to regard as a second or even third order issue, how we worship. This is a Jesus I can promise you every one of our Edinburgh friends would have a big problem with. And my uncomfortable hunch is that the majority of us would agree with them. He's just too much, isn't he? Too passionate about it all. And if we think we're fine with that, well, either we haven't noticed how shockingly angry he gets in this passage, or we're kidding ourselves about how uncomfortable our culture is with strong feelings over religious things. But if we do genuinely want to love and honor Jesus above all else, well, this is a wonderful opportunity because you never really know someone until you know what they care about so deeply that they would react like this. What is it that drives Jesus Christ at his deepest heart level of thinking and being? You see, the thing he cares about here with such burning passion is precisely what drove him to the cross for you and me. So what is it? What makes Jesus angry? And if he cares so profoundly about it, well, what about us? This is such an important event for John that he's going to explain it twice for us. First with a psalm in verses 13 to 17, and then with a sign in verses 18 to 22, what eats Jesus? Well, firstly, verses 13 to 17, he is consumed by zeal. Jesus burns for his father's honor. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now hold your horses a minute, John. Because already things have taken an interesting turn. I don't know if you've ever noticed how children tell a story or try to sum up a film. It's torture listening to them normally. And if you've read any of the other Gospels, you'll know there's a standard way of telling this story. Matthew and Mark and Luke hold back on telling us about any Passovers right until the end. Jesus' definitive confrontation with Judaism and with the temple is normally the final event that leads him to the cross. But there's always that one child who wants to jump to the climax in the first breath. And John is telling that story. Jesus was introduced, remember, as the Lamb of God with the first sign last time, that great clock towards his hour had begun to tick. The cross and his confrontation with Israel does not come as a surprise. His readers know all too well how this story is going to end. And so right from the go, John's gospel is arranged around these trips back and forth to Jerusalem with Jesus confronting and fulfilling Jewish institutions and Jewish festivals. As soon as the clock begins to tick, John shows Jesus going to the holiest place, full of the holiest people, 
at the holiest time of year. We've got one of the last prophecies of the Old Testament ringing in our ears from the prophet Malachi. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple and he shall purify its priests, the sons of Levi, like a refiner's fire. And at last they will bring to the Lord a true offering in righteousness. Well, it's Passover time. Jerusalem would be bursting at the seams, thousands and thousands of worshippers, hundreds of thousands of animals needed for sacrifice so that blood could be shed for sin-stained people and they could come close to God. Currencies from all over the world needed to be exchanged to the Tyrian shekel, the one accepted for the temple tax. All of it is good legitimate, necessary, busy activity. You couldn't worship without it. But where does Jesus find it? Verse 14. He finds it right inside the temple grounds. Apparently in the previous temple, all the markets had been set up across the Kidron Valley. People could get what they needed on their way to worship. But it wasn't exactly seeker-sensitive. Fancy turning all those tourists away from worship because they hadn't come prepared. Not to mention how lucrative it might be to bring all that business in-house. And so now it all takes place in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. The one place in all the world where non-Jews could come close to the living God. The place you would come, Jew and Gentile, to prepare yourself in repentance before you offered a sacrifice that said, Lord, there is no hope for me unless blood is spilt. I am a mess, and yet I need to be right with the one who made me. And so I'm claiming your grace, and I'm coming close. It was a place for the most serious soul business that could ever be done, where broken, needy sinners could meet a holy God and find the love and the forgiveness that they desperately needed. The one place on the planet where that could be done. The one place on the planet where Gentiles could get a taste of true worship and they had turned it into a gift shop. Yes, it was seeker-friendly, just like a Disney park is very seeker-friendly. They'd made it into a worship theme park, hadn't they? Full of shouting traders and the noise of a thousand bleating sheep. How could that not fill Jesus with burning moral indignation? It's worth noting again that this is not Mark's gospel. In Mark and the other gospels, the problem wasn't the trade It was the hypocrisy. They were hiding behind a veneer of religion as if the temple were a den for robbers to shelter in. John is doing a different thing. The problem here is explicitly the buying and selling. They were doing the right things in the wrong place. Get these things out. Out of here, he says, how dare you make my father's house a house of trade? So the problem isn't the prophet, it's the place. 
Do you see how personal it was for Jesus? This is my father's house. What are you doing? The place you're meant to worship and honor him. We tend to call this the cleansing of the temple, but it's more than that, isn't it? If he's cleansing it, he's cleansing it the way I as a vet would have cleansed an abscess full of pus. You don't rub it with a baby wipe. All of it, the whole thing has to be cleared out. Jesus takes a whip and he judges it. Remember, these are the people who care about worship. They've traveled all the way to the temple for Passover, spent a fortune. But how serious are they about the presence of God in their midst? Because they are not honoring him properly in Jesus' eyes. The scholar Don Carson writes this, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, humble adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. It's not that everything has to be frigid and formal and joyless in church, but is our basic posture one that recognizes where we are and who it is we're coming to? How far has the pendulum swung in our generation away from that frigid formalism to something that just forgets what we're doing altogether? Can we sometimes forget that God deserves serious respect? There are loads of legitimate things we could be doing right now, Christian things even, messaging a friend to encourage them on WhatsApp, sorting out our giving on mobile banking. Those things are all part, aren't they, of how we live the Christian life these days. They're not sinful. But doing them as we're meant to be drawing close in all humility to a holy God with honesty about our souls, well, that might be sinful. And so Jesus comes to his temple as the divine son, burning with indignation for the honor of his father. And as his disciples see it, verse 17, they remember a psalm. Except there's one little word that they remember wrong. Look back at that psalm, at Psalm 69, either in your Hebrew or your Greek version. And what you'll see in verse 9 is David singing this. It's in your ESV too, don't worry. Zeal for your house has consumed me. David sung that psalm as the suffering Messiah, someone who had been consumed. But when his disciples see Jesus like this, they realize that ultimately it was always pointing forwards to another king whose zeal would one day consume him. Do you see the word they change? We sung the psalm earlier, didn't we? A psalm David cries out as the Messiah rejected by his own. Look at verse eight of the psalm. He is a stranger to his own brothers. He's come to his own and his own have not received him. And the thing about him that costs him so very much in his people's eyes, verse nine, is his absolute burning passion that God is worshipped sincerely. 
They cannot stand it. It's too much. Because of that zeal, he will bear the reproach that is really meant for his father. But in the end, look at verse 30. In the end, he will offer a true sacrifice of praise that will please God more than any ox killed in any temple. And verse 32, that zeal of the king for true worship, a true sacrifice, that is what ultimately will bring joy to his people. It is because Jesus is the joy bringer we met at that wedding that he burns like this for his people to worship God in truth. But as his disciples see how intensely he cares about this, they know, don't they, that it will not end well for Jesus. That psalm is prophetic. Zeal like that could only lead to a cross. It will consume him. So there is a huge cost to the wine and the joy that he came to bring. Well, before we move on, we have to acknowledge what this is showing us about Jesus and ask the uncomfortable question. The real Jesus is seriously intense, isn't he? Have we accepted that? His consuming passion was true worship and devotion for his father. That is what Jesus Christ was driven by, not people's feelings, not inclusion or tolerance or whether things feel strange and uncomfortable. He cares profoundly that human beings worship his father with sincere hearts. He demands it. So here's the question we know we have to ask. How high a priority is that for us? How much do we burn for the thing Jesus burned for? Does it upset us when we see church treated lightly, the place where we meet with God and souls are forged? Does it upset us when we see God treated as an extra, a hobby, a pet? Does it upset us when we see the bricks of God's living church torn apart from one another? People slowly growing cold and crowding God out with all the other things they could be doing on a Sunday. Does it upset us when we notice all of that in ourselves? Your parents are away for the weekend, but they let you have your friends around to stay in their home. But as time goes on, they treat it with more and more disrespect. One of them has his feet on your father's desk, Another is smoking in the living room, flicking ash onto the rug. They laugh at a photo of your mum. What does it say about you if you don't feel a thing? We are so suspicious of anger today, aren't we? Especially when it comes to matters of faith. But Sinclair Ferguson puts it very well. Love cannot be anything less and angry when the object of that love is maligned? Is ours truly love if it never fires with anger? So what would Jesus say then if he came here? We are very, very busy with church, but how are we treating his father? 
That's what matters. What is happening inside? How is that immense blessing of grace that he wants for this hour or two together being used? It's not comfortable for us to see worship so high up on Jesus' agenda. We struggle, I think, to understand why saints in previous generations would have gone to the stake for something like the way God is worshipped. It just seems to make so much of something that feels small. But here's the ultimate question. If we could worship God any old way, then why the cross? It was only because Jesus really cared that you and I come rightly to his father, that he was prepared to die for it. And that is made even clearer in the second half of this story, verses 18 to 22. It's not just that Jesus was consumed by zeal. He was consumed for zeal. True worship is not just his passion, it's his gift to us. He died and he rose that we might have it and enjoy it. You see, it can't be real zeal for worship if all Jesus does is shut down what is bad. Think of one thing that you're just weirdly fanatical about. For me, it's good bread. I can get disproportionately outraged by nasty sugary bread or even worse, bread that looks great on the outside, but it's full of gimmicky stuff. I love good, proper, fresh bread. And I take it as a personal slight when the rest of the world doesn't love it just as obsessively. You anger me. So if I had an infinite supply of money, I could quite happily launch a one-man crusade to buy up all the grotty little bakeries in Britain. But if I bought every last one of them out and just shut them down, I don't think any of you would look at me and think, wow, there's a guy who's really into his bread. I guess he'd be thinking, why on earth did we call this guy with a weird, vindictive hatred of Greg's to be our pastor? No, if it was truly zeal for beautiful bread that was driving me, I would have to shut all of those down and replace them with the real thing so that every street in Scotland was woken up each morning to the smell of freshly baking sourdough. Wouldn't that be beautiful? You see what it means then for Jesus' zeal for his father's house to drive him into shutting down the corrupt worship of the temple. It means implicitly that he is preparing an invitation to a far better sort of worship. It means another sacrificial lamb is being prepared. Better blood is about to be spilled, an offering in righteousness. It was there in Malachi. It was there in the psalm. The Messiah longs for his people to draw close to God around a better offering and through a better temple. And that challenge to their temple is not something the authorities in Jerusalem miss. So verse 18 takes us right to the real issue between them. Notice what they don't say. If one of you were to stand up and start making a whip right now, 
and try to drive the lot of us out of this building, we would probably think you'd simply lost it, wouldn't we? There would be all sorts of safeguarding conversations at the next elders' meeting. We'd think you had gone bonkers. But they don't call him a madman, do they? And they don't deny the truth even in what he's saying. At some level, what he's saying about their posture before God touches a nerve. They know there's something in it. But it doesn't mean they're going to let him say it. There's not a moment of self-reflection. What they demand is, what right do you have to do this? What's your authority? Give us some sort of sign to prove it. Here's the real issue then. Who is Jesus to demand how God is worshipped? Now, it's worth noticing that demands for a sign in the Bible never go well. It's a theme that goes right back to the Exodus. Moses was sent to his own people with signs to authenticate his authority. And yet even after the 10 plagues, even as they are literally staring at a pillar of fire, they moan about him and say they might as well have been buried back in Egypt. Signs in the Bible never really produced trust even for that generation that saw the most miraculous signs of any generation ever, they never really stopped grumbling at Moses. And there's a similar thing, I think, going on here in John, a strange paradox in that John has given us a book full of signs, and yet he is strangely ambivalent about faith that is based on those signs. While Jesus does offer a sign of sorts, but in a very veiled sort of way. He gives a command to them in verse 19. It's an imperative. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they can't possibly understand at this point what he truly means, but their response tells us everything. Because if they were truly asking for a sign out of a place of faith, seeking more faith, well, how should they have responded? They should have obeyed that sign he offered them as best as they understood it, shouldn't they? And started to pull down their corrupt temple brick by brick. They had met God's son and heard him speak. It should have been enough. You are already destroying this precious temple of yours, he says. So go ahead, tear it down completely. But of course, they don't do that. Now they laugh. And I think that explains John's ambivalence about sign faith. We don't really ask God for miracles because we want to believe, do we? We demand miracles because we want not to believe. They want an excuse to evade Jesus and his right to demand true worship. And that's why he offers them the sign he does. A sign that will one day, when they understand it fully, be both a demonstration and an invitation. John is giving us his clue right here that the final great sign of his book will be the one we have to wait for right until the end. I don't know why it is that so many scholars argue <laughs> 
about what sign number seven in John's gospel is. He tells us right here. It is the moment the human body of Jesus is put to death on a cross and he rises vindicated to new life. That moment will demonstrate precisely what authority Jesus has to demand how God is worshipped. It will be the moment that they see that they put to death their own God and King. Just noticed a little surprise in verse 19. Normally, we talk about the Father raising Jesus, don't we? But not here. I myself will raise this temple. When Jesus speaks, God the Trinity speaks. And so what an irony is this. In killing him, they have destroyed their own temple. The one in whom God and man meet. And they render their own precious building in Jerusalem obsolete forever. Because without even knowing it, those priests have offered the only true sacrifice they have ever made. An offering in righteousness, a true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Who are you then to demand we worship God your way? And what right do you have to judge this temple? Well, I am the son of my father. I am the king of the Psalms. I am the temple itself. So his resurrection will be a demonstration that they got it badly, badly wrong in rejecting him. And yet in his grace, at the same time, it's an invitation. An invitation to come and worship at the real thing. Even now, it is not too late. So friends, I wonder if we appreciate what it actually means to draw close to the risen Jesus. Jesus burns for his father's honor and now and forevermore his own body is the place we can honor him. Everything that temple in Jerusalem pointed to becomes real and actual when God the eternal son knits himself forever to a real human nature. It's always been heading here. In the garden, the living God walked and talked with human beings. And at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, he does it once more. And there is no more temple in that city, says John, because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So from the resurrection and now and forevermore, Jesus himself becomes the focal point of everything that was pictured in that Old Testament building. The great built in longing of every believing heart is to be in the presence of God. Jesus died and rose so that we could be when we're with him. And to quote Martin Luther, there is nowhere else that God wants to be found. If you want to step onto holy ground, you have to come to the God-man himself, Jesus Christ.
always and forever, the body of Jesus will be ground zero for God's glorious presence with mankind. You cannot find God outside of his temple. So always and forever, Jesus Christ himself is where we need to go for all atonement and forgiveness and all relationship and all true worship. His human body is the only place where that is possible. Even right now, while we're separated from him by the ages, sometimes in the New Testament we talk about church or even individual believers as a temple, and it's true in a sense, but only because by his spirit living in us, we are being gathered up together to where he is. We are being added one brick at a time to his body, his living temple. And one day we will be with him by sight to love and adore him in flesh and blood. But it will always and forever be Jesus Christ that we gather around, the final and the best. So whoever wants to approach God today needs to know that they will not find him living in a special building. We will not find him in a special form of words or a specially spiritual prayer or through a specially anointed pastor. We will find him anywhere throughout the world that people come together with sincere hearts and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God who died for us, in your loving grace, be with us. And he will come. I wonder if we realize what an invitation that is and whether we treat the privilege of worshiping through him with anywhere near the respect and the awe it deserves. When we come close to Jesus, we are coming to the most awesome, holy, glorious temple that has ever been built, made without human hands. And so we come prepared and we stand up straight and we put on a proper shirt and we pray as if we're talking to a king and we listen with reverence and we sing our hearts out because he is holy and he's called us into his presence in love. Well, you never really know someone until you know what makes them fire with anger. Jesus' love for his father was a love that burns, and he burned for us to share it. And he burned so hot that he died for us to share it. So let's never be cold or flippant or indifferent over that amazing privilege that meant so very much to him. Let's bow our heads and give thanks. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, our way, our truth, our life. Forgive us, Lord, when our hearts have not burned for the privilege you died to give us of coming close to the holy God in reverence and love and awe and honoring him with hearts washed clean. 
Fill us, we pray, with the kind of love for his honor that flashes with anger. And fill us with awe that a God to be taken so seriously would allow us to come to the temple of his son. For we ask it, Lord Jesus, through your merit alone and to your praise. Amen.